1. We'll be finishing Romans chapter 1 uh, this morning. That's interesting. Um, you probably heard the old phrase, quiet as a church mouse. Well, that was never intended to apply to the church itself. Never were we to be silent. And don't get me wrong, we can talk. We can talk about the weather, we can talk about food, we can even talk about each other. But there are times that we do not seem to talk about the things that God is telling us to speak about. We are not always willing to tell people the implications of the gospel. And that is a very, very important thing for us. It's not enough to tell a sinner uh, that Jesus will save them. We must also tell them for what they are being saved. You know, prepositions are important. So you are being saved, right? We know that it's important. But what are you being saved from? What, what is changing? What is becoming different in your life? That is also part of the gospel. And it's an important part, and it's something that we don't always talk about. The irony is modern people tell you to strive to be yourself, and it is from that exactly that Jesus saved we are being saved from being ourselves because what we are is sinful. What we are is a fallen person. What we are needs to be redeemed, needs to be changed, needs to be remade. You can search the scriptures all you want to. You will not find an admonition to be true to yourself. If it feels good, do it. You will never find those things in scripture. You might find them in advertising, but you will not find them in scripture. Instead, we find commands such as flee immorality and put your old man to death. Daily take up your cross. I'm now dead. It's not me that lives, but Christ that lives in me. We find those kinds of admonitions in Scripture. We do not find an admonition to be ourselves or to be true to our true self or to be as we really should be or to live in our own truth and all the other little things that they say nowadays. None of those things are what God tells us to do. None of those things are what God tells us to be. But not only do you hear this from the world, you begin to hear these sorts of ideas and concepts from the church itself. And this is very, very challenging. Uh, not challenging, bad. Let me make that clear. It's not challenging, it's bad. When the church begins to sound like the world, the church has lost its true voice. It has lost the true message of the gospel. So, uh, this morning as we read uh, we will read, Paul make the statement and proclaim that he is not ashamed of the gospel. That's going to be the opening verses that we read. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And I would say that most modern Christians would echo that. They would jump right in and say, yeah, we're not ashamed of the gospel. But they probably stop reading at verse 17 because once you get to verse 18, Paul talks about the implications of the gospel. What are the things that the gospel is saving us from? That's where they get off the bus. That's where the crowd falls silent. Because what it means is calling sin, sin. What it means is being honest about the fact that there are ways that people live today that are not pleasing to God. And, and Paul does not hold back, and we should not either. Those who boldly proclaim the gospel must be willing to boldly condemn the sins for which Jesus died. We must be willing to speak the entire truth. Not just the truth that is comfortable or convenient or acceptable at this time. It is important to remember that Jesus never told us to be a part of a popularity contest. Paul did not try to participate in a popularity contest. And when we try to do it today, we miss the point of the gospel. We certainly do not proclaim the message of the gospel. And it is not enough to just gather people into a club. We must bring them to basically to their knees in front of the cross of Jesus Christ. We must encourage people, challenge people, admonish, admonish people to surrender to Jesus Christ. I think it's important that we recall when we start talking about the gospel, 
When we sing songs in this church, for example, sometimes we sing, just as I am, I come. And that's a biblical point. We're not going to get better and then come to Jesus. That's not the way it works. You come to Him stained in your sin. You come to Him dead in your sin. You come to Him needing salvation. But what we don't sing in this church is, just as I am, I will stay. The reality is God calls us to repentance and He calls us to change. And He is working in our lives to restore us to what we are supposed to be. That's where the gospel stops being preached in a lot of churches today. It is not being in, in Christian articles. It's not in, in Christian magazines. It's not being proclaimed in Christian churches the way that it should. That God will change you. He will make you like Him. He will not make you the true you. He will make you truly like Him. That's what He's working towards. And we don't talk about that anymore because we want to be true to ourselves and we also want to be popular with the crowd that says that being different is okay. Well, God didn't call us to be different as in unique in our own identities. He called us to be different and separate from the world. So yes, you can be different, but it's God's different. It's not man's different. So the sermon in a sentence is this. Christians should never be ashamed of the gospel. Instead, we should boldly speak life into a dying world. We should not be afraid to speak life. And you know what? Sometimes speaking life means telling the truth about things that people don't want to hear. So let's read this. This is Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 16 through verse 32. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now this is the point, like I say, the crowds fall silent. Everybody preaches this, everybody proclaims this. But this is the part, starting in verse 18, where people stop echoing. Um, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For it is hid for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts are darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts, or in the lust of their hearts, to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged their natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness 
righteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Okay, so in a formal outline of the book of Romans, verse 16 and 17 form kind of like the theme and the summary of the entire message of everything that Paul's going to say. And then when you begin uh, chapter 1, verse 18, uh, Paul is essentially saying that Gentiles are justly condemned by God because they knew enough to know God, yet they lived lives that, that, that rejected God and, and basically projected sin into the world. And then in chapter 2, he says that the Hebrews, the Jews, they are also guilty because they had the law, they had the prophets, and they chose instead to depend upon the, the, the trappings or the, the decoration of religion rather than its substance and its source. And so then in chapter 3, he begins saying that we're all condemned. No one is righteous. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. So everyone is, uh, is unrighteous and therefore condemned. And then when you get to the end of chapter 3, that's when the gospel begins. The fact that there's all this bad news. We're all sinful. We are all under the judgment of God. And then, But Jesus was set forth into this world to be a sacrifice for sins, to pay the price for sins, so that anyone that believes in him might be saved. This is the kind of stuff that starts revivals because the reality is soft gospel preaching or half gospel preaching, whatever you want to call it, does not start a revival. But when you explain to people that sin leads to death, Jesus brings life from that sin, then they begin to recognize the fact that they have to do something about their sin. So let's get into this. First of all, the gospel can save. Okay, the first two verses in this passage constitute the theme of Romans, and it should constitute the theme <coughs> for all Christians. The way that Paul states, uh, I am not ashamed of the gospel, enhances his sentiment by understatement. So it's like if you had the best meal you've had in a long time, you say, well, that wasn't bad. That's what Paul's saying. He's not saying that I'm not ashamed of the gospel like it's borderline, but I'm not ashamed. That's not what he's saying. This is like an understatement. That's not bad, meaning that that's really good. And so it's not that he's not ashamed of the gospel. He has never found a moment of discontent in the gospel. He has never found something in the gospel that isn't working for him. So... We know that the gospel refers to the good news that Jesus came to this earth and died for our sins and rose from the dead on the third day. Um, if sin were not a serious matter, Jesus would not have come to this earth to die for it. It's important. You know, we love to celebrate Christmas because that means that Jesus came. We enjoy celebrating Easter because that means that Jesus rose from the dead, giving us the hope of resurrection. Even in a sound biblical way, worshiping Easter still reminds us of the hope of future glory. Good Friday, however, remains, uh, reminds us of our sin and the darkness of our soul because that's the day Jesus paid the price. And so we don't talk about it quite as much. When we put the elements of the gospel together, we must understand that the only biblical response is to repent and believe. It's no coincidence that the first recorded sermon of Jesus, it's in Matthew chapter 4, but he just simply says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, there, there are people that want to say, well, Jesus was just a good, you know, teacher, you know, morality, teaching people to love one another, those kinds of things. But his first message, and the most resounding one, was to repent. Because in mankind, Jesus saw something that must change. 
And we have to be able to admit that in us, there are things that need to change. We also have to be willing to proclaim, no matter how unpopular it is, that in the world, there are things that need to change. The gospel demands a decision about sin from each individual that seeks salvation. We have to deal with the sin part. That's why we're being saved. There's no need for a savior if you don't need to be saved. And what are we being saved from? Our sin, ourself, our nature, the evilness that lives within us. So when Paul talks about um, the, the, the gospel, he says that it's the power of God for salvation. This is the, this is the power. This is the method that God uses to save us. So in this case, that word salvation, it's not just referring to the moment that someone you know, bows their head, close their eyes, and asks Jesus to come in their heart. It is everything. It's the point that you're saved. It's that moment of faith. But it is also that, that duration of faith. It is the, the sanctifying process where God is making us new. And it is the final, the sum total of salvation when we are presented before God as fully restored, spotless. The way that Jesus presents us when he brings us to the Father. So it is all of those things. The gospel is the power of God to deliver us from sin, teach us to live in righteousness, and bring us fully restored into his presence at the end of time. That's what the gospel is about, is that whole transformative experience that we have with God from beginning to end. You know, we never get past the gospel. As people, it's not like, well, the gospel was the early stages of my Christianity and now I'm doing something else. So we never get past the gospel or move beyond the gospel because we're always being remade in the message of the gospel. Every day we must look at the gospel. We must look at what it means. The fact that Jesus died for our sins, identify the sins in our life, and continue to strive to be more like him. And that, that desire to do that, that comes from God himself. He is providing that so that we can be more like him. The way we access the power of the gospel is through belief. So that word uh, means that we glue all things together. So that's what that means. That, that word belief is like gluing things together. And so what the picture here is that there are some elements of the gospel that everybody would accept. You know, Jesus died for me. I'm going to heaven. There are certain elements of the gospel that everyone would accept. But the rest of the gospel is that it's required that we believe all of it has to be glued together. It comes as one. And so that also means I have to turn from my sin. I have to live a righteous life. I have to forsake everything else. I have to make my life solely about the glory and honor of Jesus Christ himself. Gluing all that together, that is faith. That is what we believe. That is how we are saved. And so that's an important thing. So it's worth noting that Paul says to the Jew first, only because they were the first ones to hear the gospel. He's not saying that, that the Jews receive a preferential treatment when it comes to the cross. He's just simply saying they were there on the day of Pentecost the first time the gospel was preached. And so that was, that was why they received it first. And Jesus came into Israel, not into a Gentile nation. So the gospel reveals the righteousness of God because of God's willingness to save sinful man. This is the righteousness of God. There is no reason that he is forced to save us. There is nothing out there saying to God that he must make a sacrifice for our sins. It is his choice. It is a good, loving, and righteous choice that he has made. And so it's very important that we recognize how this scripture is laid out. The gospel is revealing God's righteousness. Man's sin is revealing God's wrath. And so those two are going to be connected. We're going to get to that in just a minute. But it's important that we recognize that. 
So each time a person believes in the gospel, the righteousness is further, the righteousness of God is further revealed to this world. So each of us are a testimony to the righteousness of God. Think about where you are and think about where you have been. Think about where you might have went had it not been for the gospel. That is the righteousness of God. He has saved you from all of that. He has saved you from those things and delivered you in a, in a way that you could not have delivered yourself. So faith in the gospel grants us right standing with God uh, and life for all eternity. Okay, so this is, that's the first point. That's all the easy stuff. That's the non-controversial things there. And so the gospel can say, let's go to the controversy. Okay, it's broken up into two things. I don't know if I even told you titles or sermon titles or points or anything like that. So the first thing that we're going to talk about is that the gospel cannot coexist with idolatry. And you might say, well, we live in the 21st century. We don't have idols. Well, hang in there for just a minute, and let's see if we can find a few. So most modern preachers are comfortable preaching the first two verses of this passage, but it becomes increasingly difficult to speak about the rest of this and maintain popularity. And we're just not so popular when we start talking about some of the rest of these things. Just as the gospel reveals God's righteousness, the sinfulness of man reveals his wrath. So we are living in a time in which God's wrath is revealed in the world. So what does that look like? Okay, so at first of all it says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, or all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So what, is this, what does this mean? We must make an important decision between the distinction, or we must make an important distinction between the wrath of God and the consequences of sin. Both are real, both exist. So sin has consequences. We know that. We know that if you do something wrong, typically it leads to problems down the road. It, 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 it's, it's simple. You know, if you, if you break a law, there are penalties. We know that. Those would be consequences. The wrath of God is different. So what God is doing about sin is his wrath. And we're going to see that. The fact that sin leads to despair and, 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 and sorrow and ultimately death, those are the consequences. So we'll see the difference between those two things. All sin has natural consequences, um, and we have no evidence that God ever relieves us of those things. In other words, if you do something wrong, you're probably going to face the consequences. The wrath of God, which is the strong and continuous reaction of a holy God against all evil, is also revealed against sin. And that is an act of judgment that is separate from the consequences of sin. Meaning, if you commit a sin, if you steal something, well, you may face all the consequences that earth has to offer for that. In other words, the original owner of whatever you stole may come after you and he, he, he may press charges. You may face legal ramifications. Whatever trouble you get in with man, all of that can happen. But there is a whole different level of a problem that you're going to have for yourself because you are also inviting the judgment and the wrath of a holy God. Those things are separate. You are going to face the consequences, but you may also face the judgment of God. And so those things are real. So formally, this portion of Romans, as I've said, is, is the uh, Paul's indictment of the Gentiles, that they've had enough evidence to believe in God, um, but they suppress the truth. So as we uh, go into these opening chapters, there will be specific condemnation for the Gentiles, for the Jews, and for everyone. Um, and we'll keep this in context. However, when we see something that applies or something that, that we can still see in the world today, no matter whether it be Gentile, Jew, church, outside the church, we will look at those things and we'll make the proper applications there. So the argument here is that there's enough in nature for any person to recognize the existence of a powerful creator. So notice what he says in verse 19 and 20. He says, 
For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. So what that means is that just by looking at this world, what God has made, you can see that he is an eternal and powerful God. You may not know everything. You may not be able to, to, to go out and see the, a beautiful sunrise and say, yep, that tells me Jesus died for me. But what you can say is that, yes, there is a mighty creator. Just Wednesday night, storms roll through Alabama. And we were, I think, very fortunate. I haven't heard a whole lot of uh, people lost their lives or anything. But think about the power there. That is just a fraction, a small fraction of the power of our God. And so when you think about things like that, when you think about even what mankind can do, think about what we can do, and, and we are nothing compared to what God can do. That kind of power, that is amazing. That is amazing. And when we think about it, it's nothing. It's nothing compared to what he is able to do. The world can look and they can see a powerful God. Again, they may not get all the way to the, to the manger and to, the, to Calvary and to the grave, but they can certainly see that there is a powerful God. So, we are surrounded on all sides by evidence of God's power, but in many cases we uh, do not allow ourselves to recognize him. So Paul says that because there is evidence of a creator God out there and people ignore him, then they are without excuse. So he talks about the fact that instead of worshiping God, they worship man, or they worship images that look like man, or, or beasts, or birds, or things like that. So even the people of Paul's day emphatically claimed to be wise while they were demonstrating themselves to be foolish. They said, we are wise, and so we worship this thing that controls the sea. Well, it's just a man carved into wood or stone. We are wise, and so we worship this man that controls the lightning. Once again, just a man carved in stone, not God himself. So their thinking was corrupted because they gave no, God no honor and no gratitude. You know, we can uh, certainly see the parallels in our modern culture, and I would say that we are even more responsible than those in the first century. So consider the vast amount of scientific knowledge that we have accumulated. According to this passage, it all points to the existence of God. Think about all the things we know now. Just If you just think about like the Hubble telescope and all that they were able to see with that thing and how far into the universe they were able to see. Think about the, the, the marvel of medicine and all the things that they've discovered about the human body and the way that it works. Think about all the things that they've been able to, to, to create and, and work out in science. There are so many different things. And what this passage is telling us is that the wonder of this creation all points to the Creator. But that's not how we see it. That's not how we see it at all. Um, instead, we use science to explain that nature created nature. It doesn't even make sense. Man also attempts to harness the tools of God to change the plan of God in people's lives. I'm going to start getting in trouble now. How much research, money, and talent has been spent developing new and improved ways to abort babies? Think about how many people's whole career has been invested in ending the lives of children. How horrible that is. That's what we do with science. Instead of saying, look, there is a beautiful, creative God that can make a human being inside of another human being, and it's totally different than the one that, that's the host. God is making something amazing. We say, how can we kill this? That is what we do with our science. How, what mighty gulfs of science has been spanned to change a teenage boy into a teenage girl? 
Think about what we're doing nowadays. There is medicine, there is surgeries, there is therapies, there's all kinds of stuff. And, and, and you say, well, it's not happening as much as you think it is. Well, it's happening enough that states are making laws to combat it. But it's happening. People are deciding to change their children's gender. People are changing their own gender. This is the very plan of God for their lives in the most evident and physical and visible way. And they're changing it. They're throwing it away. Science has been invested hours and hours into how do we do this? How do we make this work? What diseases do you think can be cured if scientists were not preoccupied with curing diseases that are only passed through sexual immorality? Could they have cured cancer if they weren't worried about all these different, you know, sexually transmitted diseases and everything else they've got to work on? Could they have done something different if they weren't worried about all the sins that are the diseases that come from our sin? What have we wasted what have we squandered just because of sin? Mankind is guilty. All the knowledge that we have, all the evidence that we have, we have used it to create more sin, not less sin. We have used it to point to us rather than to point to God. So we claim to be smarter than previous generations because look what we can do. We can go to the moon. We can travel fast. We can fix things that were broken. We can do all these wonderful things. We claim to be smarter than previous generations, but we act with such foolishness that this cannot be true. We are great fools. We have traded God for science, and now we cannot even answer a simple scientific question unless we have a doctorate in that discipline. Some people can't even tell you what a woman is. You know, when you think about this, we have degraded to the point that it's, it's wrong to call sin sin anymore. We're getting to the point where it will become illegal. It will become hate speech to say sin is sin. This country is going there. It's going there fast. And one of the reasons is because the church hasn't been doing it. We have been accepted. We have confused acceptance for love. And I'll get to that in just a minute. So we have a very difficult problem in front of us. So whether we worship man, beast, or nature, we are still trading the glory of the creator for the weakness of creation. That's what we're doing. When we worship, whether it be science or whether it be you know, choice or whether it be some lifestyle, whatever it is that we choose to worship, we are trading the glory of God for the inglory of humanity, the inglory of the creation. And that leads to drastic consequences. So it's important for us to point out that people are free to receive or reject the revelation of God. So God's put his evidence in the world. People can either receive it or they can reject it. But they cannot reject it uh, without the consequences for their choices. So if they reject God, there will be consequences. Because mankind simply rejected the existence of God and his wrath is revealed against them by allowing them to go their own way and learn at last to hate the emptiness of a life turned away from God. So what is the wrath of God doing? What is God's response? He is allowing them to go down that road. And instead of stopping them, instead of preventing them in some way. So think about, we just finished Genesis in the Tower of Babel. Think about that. That mankind was going down a bad road and God stepped in, He intervened, and He stopped them from doing that. And He spread them out so that they could try again. He's not stopping us anymore. The wrath of God is revealed. Whatever path we want to walk down, we're just going to walk down it. And it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. Don't be alarmed by the fact that people in this world today don't think the way that you do if you think in, in, in a biblical way. Because their minds are being degraded. They think that they're wise, but they're becoming more and more foolish. 
2 plus 2 doesn't equal 4 anymore in their minds because they don't think that way. They don't think in terms of absolutes. They don't think in terms of God and good and evil. They think in terms of their own truth, which can be defined in any way that they want it to be defined. And so things that you look at and you see from an objective standpoint, you can see it one way. There's a thousand subjective ways that they can look at it. So we have to be aware that God is allowing people to walk down this road. The thinking is not going to get better. So if you watch the news or if you listen, you pay attention to what people are saying, and you say, how do you think like that? This current generation's in trouble. Well, this current generation's in trouble. Our generation's in trouble. The next generation's in trouble. All the generations are in trouble because they have turned away from God, and now God has allowed them to walk this path. However far they want to walk it, until His judgment comes, they are going to walk that path. In the Gospel, there is one God. He is both the Creator and He's the Savior. So if the world looks and they see a Creator, they must look and find that same Savior. The church must boldly proclaim the truth about God if we are to be able to proclaim with Paul that we are not ashamed of the Gospel. If we will not call sin what it is, we are Gospel preachers. We are not proclaiming the gospel. It's not just about baby Jesus in the manger. It's not even just about the resurrected Savior. It is also about the fact that He had to die a, a death in order to pay for the sins that we have committed. As a perfect Lamb of God, He had to pay the ultimate price. If we are not proclaiming that, we are not proclaiming the gospel, we are ashamed of it. So the last point, the gospel cannot coexist with immorality. So the wrath of God against sin led him to turn man over to his own sin. And we see that universally the character of man has rotted. It gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. So at the time that Paul was writing this, there weren't medical procedures to turn boys to girls and girls to boys. But he hit on the worst thing, which is still very prevalent in our society. And so we'll get into all of those things. Paul illustrates this graphically by the sin of sexual impurity, specifically homosexual behavior. So these aren't the only sins. These are not the only sins. But Paul is using this as the illustration. See how bad things have gotten. And then he points out things that are going on currently. So the outworking of God's abandonment of mankind is explained in two ways. First, mankind experiences personal deterioration as evidenced by sins such as homosexuality. So first it's personal. Then it gets into social ruin. But first it's social. So it's personal. So what happens to mankind as God just lets them sin? Just lets them go. We know sin's a disease. And we know that as any other disease, it gets worse and worse and worse as it goes. Well, th these are some of the terminal effects of sin as we go through this. So, Paul says that homosexuality is a shameful passion. It's a shameful. It is something that dishonors and degrades a person. And so homosexuality is a sin that once it's committed, it, it brings shame and it brings dishonor. It degrades a person. <laughs> We know that depression rates, even suicide rates, are high with homosexuals. We also know that they're even higher with transgenders. So it seems to be having a psychological effect on people that is much deeper than anyone wants to admit. Paul also says that homosexuality is unnatural. Anyone claiming to have been made gay, in other words, God made me that way, they're dead wrong. God did no such thing. God does not make people gay. He makes people in His image, and then we go the way that we want to go. And how does that happen? Because the wrath of God is revealed. We've rejected the existence of our Creator, the loving Savior who sent His Son to die for us, and so He said, okay, go in your sin. We go in our sin, and before we know it, we have degraded to the point that we are trading natural for unnatural. We are staining and smirching the image of God in our own lives. 
That's what it is. So it's not that God made us this way. It is unnatural. It is not the way we were made, but we have chosen this path. Homosexuality, it says, is an indecent act, which is now practiced in public, proving that the conscience is dead. So those things that were once hidden, and at least in this country, homosexuality was hidden, and then sometime in my lifetime, those doors of the closets just got ripped open, and all of a sudden, we have parades about the thing. The reality is, conscience is dead. Those things that are sinful, that are shameful, that should not be celebrated or even brought into public are brought into the light of day. They're presented to our children in schools, and they're emulated time and time again by one generation after another. And each rendition is worse. Each rendition is more bold, more graphic, more horrible. It continues to go on. The church is at fault in some ways because we have not declared clearly what should be done. Paul also says that homosexuality is a perversion. It is neither an illness nor an unfortunate biological mistake. It is a choice. It is something that people are doing as a deviation. It is something that is wrong. Um, it is deviant behavior and those who demand social acceptance, legal recognition, and religious uh, respectability for homosexual behavior must look elsewhere for support. They cannot find it in this passage and they will not find it in Scripture. The Bible does not support homosexuality. Anybody that tells you that is a liar. The truth is not in them. I have heard people try to make arguments from Scripture that homosexuality is acceptable to God. They are wrong. Period. I'm not being political. I'm not trying to, 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 to just, you know, grandstand here. I'm telling you, the Bible does not support it. God makes it abundantly clear that it is wrong. The gospel has only one offer for the practicing homosexual. That is, deliverance through Jesus Christ to become what God intended them to be. You know, if we are a liar and Jesus saves us, he teaches us to tell the truth. If we are a thief and Jesus saves us, he teaches us to work for what we have and not steal it. And if you are gay and God saves you, he will teach you to be straight. He will teach you to be the way that he made you to be. God delivers us from our sin. He does not save us so that we stay in our sin. That's abundantly clear in Scripture. Today, many in the church are unwilling to condemn the practice of homosexuality. It gets even worse than that. There are no exceptions. There are no mitigating factors, and there is no need for context. Homosexuality is sin. There, well, I'll say this in a minute. So right now I'll say this. Transgender movement, the transgender movement, is the next step in this degradation. As people seek to further distance themselves from God's design, they mutilate their own bodies and the bodies of their children. That's what this is. So when you read in Scripture, mutilating of the bodies, you read in Scripture those things, this is just a, a new way to do some of the same old sins that people have been doing. They've always, People have always been trying to stain, mar, and remove the image of God in their lives. Transgenderism is just the next step of that. It's just the next thing that's going on. You know, I don't recall when I really heard about it, but I don't know that I heard about it when I was younger. I remember hearing about the, the homosexual movement, and then the transgender movement has come in after that. Those are just steps away from God. Those are things that happen when God says, the punishment, my wrath revealed to you, is that you go deep, as deep in your sin as you want to. That's God's wrath against sin, is that they go as deep as they want to. And so you might say, well, that, that is evil, because he's not even correcting them. But what you have to understand is that this is also God's mercy. It is his wrath and his mercy at the same time, because these people, left unchecked, will live their lives out, and they will die, and they will go to hell. 
And so what God allows is for hell to come to earth. These are living nightmares that these people are in. Whether we recognize it or not, He is bringing nightmares into their lives so that they will recognize the emptiness and the futility of their lives. Then they will turn to Jesus. But you know what is required for them to turn to Jesus? A church that's been proclaiming the whole time the truth. We're not doing it. We have not been telling the truth the way that it should be told. We're allowing people to have their parades. We're allowing people to go around and teach our children the wrong thing. The reality is if we don't speak the truth, they won't know the truth. So even though they have hell on earth, they won't know about heaven. They won't know about the resurrection. They won't know about Jesus. They won't know that He changes their lives. They won't know that. That's the only thing the gospel will do for them is change their lives. If they don't realize that Jesus is there waiting to change them, they will not change. And if the church is saying, it's okay, you can be like this and come and be with us. It's okay, you can be yourself and still be, you know, God's person. That's not the message of the gospel. It is a perversion. It is just as perverted as what they're doing out there on the streets. It is sickening what happens in churches when people are allowed to remain the way they are. We don't come in here to stay the way that we started. Just as I am, I come, but I will not stay that way. Remember that. Remember that, church. There is a line that the church must walk when dealing with sin, uh, especially these sins that have taken the spotlight in our society. We have heard it said, love the sinner, hate the sin. But we must make clear that there is a distinction between love and acceptance. We do not accept sin. We call it out for what it is. That is the standard that was set by the community that wrote this book. In the first century, sin was called sin. Sin was called an abomination. People were called on to repent or they were removed from the fellowship. No practicing homosexual should be a member in good standing of a church, of a biblical church. They just shouldn't be. Now, it should go without saying that no practicing homosexual should ever be considered for the position of leadership within the church, especially pastor. It no longer goes without saying. We have to say it because they're doing it. They're doing it in churches all over America and all over the world. Homosexuals, transgenders, people of all kinds of weird gender identities, as they claim it to be, are leading churches. Would we allow the prince of darkness to speak to us from the place of God's grace? No. But yet it is happening. Not just in this country, all over the world. Darkness, darkness is pushing in. Darkness is pushing in. Our response to the homosexual and transgender communities is to love them best by sharing the full message of the gospel with them. When you love someone, you tell them the truth, even if that hurts them for a little while. We are not making friends. We are making disciples. Jesus is going to change them, so you might as well go ahead and let that cat out of the bag. Because otherwise they're going to be surprised when Jesus starts trying to change their lives. So you have to realize from the very beginning, Jesus was saying, repent. Even a religious society like that that resided in Israel needed to change. And we today in America, we might have some religion, but it ain't God's. We must change. We must declare the truth. So the second part of this passage, Paul gives us a catalog of 21 sins that are ancient wrongs, but with a modern green. And I want to do a quick word study for you here. So uh, when, when you look down in um, verse 29, the very last it says, They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God. So gossip and slander. If you go into the original language there, you're going to see two words. 
For gossips, you're going to see a word that can also be translated face. And for slander, you're going to see a word that can also be translated book. <laughs> Not really, but think about it for a minute. What happens on social media that's good? This is a place for gossips. It's a place for slanders. It's a place for trouble. When we say that social media is evil, it is a cesspit. It is where all of these ideas are disseminated. It is where all of this evil stuff is congratulated. It is where the bad things are happening. And then it seeps out into, into life. So it's, it's like leaky sewer pipes. And it just keeps going out into the real world. And it, it's infesting our world. It happens there. It starts there. So notice all of these sins that, that is mentioned here. And some of them you might say, wow, this is... This is pretty intense to be on this list, you know, disobedient to parents and things like that. But let me tell you from the perspective of somebody that's in a classroom five days a week, children that are disobedient to parents are going to be the scourge of this world. They will be. And it's always been that way, but it's going to continue to get worse and worse and worse. If you will not listen and respect your parents, you will not listen and you will not show respect out in society. And a, a society without respect is a society that is doomed. But that's exactly what God is saying here. So Paul says this. These sins, what mankind is doing, they're turning away from God, suppressing the truth of God and unrighteousness. It leads to, to personal ruin, but it also leads to social ruin. And so that's the second part of this. Um, so he starts mentioning that just a society that is based and built upon sin is bedrock. It'll never stand. This only serves as examples. So these, these sins are only examples. There's much, much more that can be said. Um, but these sins mark the lives of those who, whom God turns over to the consequences of their ungodly choices. In other words, no matter what society it is, if it is not built on the truth of God and it's built on the sins of mankind, it is going to fail. It's going to face these kinds of sins. It's going to face corruption. It's going to face Corruption, ultimately, it cannot stand. The fact that people know that God demands the death penalty for sins such as this, um, uh, but, but they go on doing them and congratulating those that also do them, it indicates that they don't love one another. They have no love for one another whatsoever. If you congratulate someone that is committing sins, you don't love them, and you don't love those that they are going to hurt. Not only do they practice the sins, but they also approve of those who practice them as well. So men against God are men for themselves and against each other. It leads to a selfish world. And we know that selfishness is one of the most destructive forces out there. When people are seeking their own, when they're not seeking God, it leads to grave consequences. So when we turn our backs on God, we are unable to create a stable society. It will always self-destruct. Study history. All of these empires and nations and mighty kingdoms that were built, that they weren't built on the word of God, they weren't built on righteousness, loving God, loving one another, all of these kingdoms have fallen. And although America was based, at least in its original days, upon tenets from Scripture, nobody in their right mind would say that we're a Christian nation now. What happens in our streets? What happens in our schools? What happens in our courthouses? What happens in our governmental buildings? These are all abominations. They are going unchecked. We will pay. We will pay. And the church must proclaim all of this. We must not be ashamed of the gospel. If we are ashamed of the gospel, we'll tell people Jesus saves. We'll tell people Jesus loves you. But we won't tell people that Jesus is going to judge you if you don't change your ways. We won't tell them that. Because you know we're not supposed to judge at all. But the reality is... God wouldn't have given us these tenets of life if we weren't supposed to call sin, sin. If we weren't supposed to be honest about what we're seeing in the world. 
you know, we're, we're used to, when we go outside and it's hot, we say, it's hot. We come inside and the heater's been on, we say, it's hot. We don't mind saying things that everybody knows until some people want to deny the truth. Homosexuality is a sin, transgenderism is a sin, abortion is a sin. People don't want to hear that. They certainly don't want to hear that this should result in the death penalty. They don't want to hear those kinds of things. And so we don't say it so loud. We might write it, but we won't say it out loud. We have to realize when Paul was proclaiming the gospel, he was proclaiming every bit of it. He was proclaiming exactly what you needed to stop doing, how you needed to repent, what you were being saved to, what God was going to do with your life. This life is forfeit because we've lived it in sin. It has to become God's life. It has to become the life of Jesus so that He can live it the way that it should be lived. You know, the Word of God has not changed, but unfortunately the people of God have. We've lost our backbone. We've lost our ability to speak these things out. So too long we've said Jesus saves without finishing the sentence. Jesus saves us from our sin and sorrow. He calls us to a life of righteousness and will deliver us from our sinful passions. He will bring us out of the den of sin into the light of His marvelous day. If we are unwilling to proclaim the fullness of the gospel, we are ashamed of it and we are unworthy of its benefits. I would say that the inability to fully proclaim the gospel is paramount to denying Jesus. Would we deny Jesus? Well, you ask any Christian and say, no, I won't deny Jesus. <coughs> Will you call sin what it truly is? You know, the word confession means to say the same thing. Would we confess sin the way God would confess it? Would we say the same thing about the sins of our modern society that God would say? If we won't do that, we're ashamed of the gospel. We're denying Jesus with our actions or with our inaction. With the fact that we won't say what should be said. So if I had to say one thing this morning, I would say be honest. Proclaim the full gospel of Jesus Christ before people. Don't tell them Jesus saves without telling them what he saved them from. Because we need to be saved from our sins. Not just a feel-good message. That's how we're prepared. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the time that we have together. together. I pray that you would help us to always be faithful, to proclaim the gospel, to not be ashamed of it. Every bit of it, no matter what the world is currently saying. We know that the only thing that stays the same is that everything changes, but one thing that never changes is the world's response to your word. The world rejects you. Individuals might receive. And so I pray that we would speak to the individuals. We would share your life-giving words with the people around us, the people that need to hear it. The world is going to be against us, but you are for us. Greater are you that is in us than he that is in the world. You have already made us more than conquerors, and I pray that we live and communicate that way. Make us faithful. Make us vocal. Make us your people your tribe, those that speak like you, those that act like you, those that love like you, and those that are willing to pay the same price that you paid for it may come to that. Lord, thank you for this time, and I pray that we use it to be equipped to go out into the world and be what you have called us to be. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.